This is one of my favorite passages in all the Bible. I, I remember uh, working through this passage, no kidding, back like in 1981. And uh, uh, working through it and seeing some of the material here that was uh, so helpful. And I'm calling this, we're looking at John 17, if you will, if you're there. Uh, here's uh, this transition after Jesus said he's overcome the world. And then verse 1 of 17 said, Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven. He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. I love this, <clears throat> I love this verse. I camped out on this one for a long time. Verse three, this is eternal life. Well, that, that, that's one to underline, isn't it? This is it. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work with which you've given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Now, in chapter 17, what we're dealing with here is what some have called, maybe even in your Bible, it says the high priestly prayer. This is the longest prayer in the entire New Testament recorded from Jesus. If, if you're interested in that kind of data, it's the longest prayer that we have of his recorded. Uh, and uh, there, there are other prayers. And so uh, one of the things that I thought about in working through this was I call this in my own mind, the real Lord's Prayer. The real Lord's Prayer. Some have suggested that the prayer he taught his disciples should be called the disciples' prayer. They said, Lord, teach us to pray. And he taught them that. He said, this is how you ought to pray. But in this prayer, we see Jesus in his own prayer, the real Lord's Prayer. And I'd like to look at this under a few different topics here, under the idea of seeing this. And we may not get to, to see today. You'll notice that's on your back. But I think there's some things here that will invigorate our lives, will help us to live them in a way as we see Jesus in his conversation. That's been our subject. Our conversations with Jesus. The first thing I want us to look at is this a posture of prayer. Now notice here in verse one, it says, and then Jesus speaking these things lifted his eyes to heaven. When I was a kid, <clears throat> uh, my mom and dad used to get after me all the time for slouching. I'd be sitting in the chair like this, you know, because I was bored. You know, we'd been there two or three minutes and I'm bored. Or I would be standing around like this. And what do you think they always said to me? Why, 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 why? <clears throat> Stand up straight, it's for your, what, posture? Supposed to be like that, and of course, I complied until they turned away, you know, like every good kid. I, my dad told me one, my dad really hurt me one time. He said, you know, son, when you were growing up, you had such a strong will. He said, I was afraid you were gonna grow up to be a criminal. <laughs> he told me that. <clears throat> and I thought, wow, no wonder I have all these issues. My dad thought I was gonna be a criminal. Anyway, there, uh, that's another story. Uh, but, but they always got after me to, to, to get my posture straight, you know, straighten up and do all that kind of stuff. There's a posture here in this prayer I want to look at. Notice what it says, he lifted up his eyes. Now, generally, it's interesting when you do a little study on this, the general custom for people when they pray is to do what? Huh? Bow their head and then what? 
close their eyes, typically. Some of you said, I heard you say, kneel. And, and that's true. And, and that's great. You know, there, there's all kinds of uh, uh, evidence, if you will, to suggest that. And, and if you're closing your eyes so you're not distracted, you know, I, I have some of those issues where I think that's the whole meaning of it is we don't close our eyes just to be close. We close them to, to kind of help us to, to concentrate. The problem with me is when I get my eyes closed, all those guys in my brain start talking, you know, because there's nothing to distract me. They're all right there. But we close our eyes so we won't be distracted. And then we bow our heads. Why? What, what do we typically do that for? Reverence. Mm-hmm. Recognizing that, that to God is God and we're not. What's interesting when you look at the New Testament and even study Judaism, that isn't typically the way Jews pray. In fact, in the New Testament even, you can write these down. There are several postures in prayer here. One is standing. In Luke 18... The Bible tells us that a Pharisee and a, and a, uh, and a tax collector went and standing in, standing in prayer. Jesus even said, when you stand in prayer, the, the idea of standing. Most Jews, when you study their theology like that, when they pray, they stand. They're standing before God. Uh, another uh, posture that we find in uh, the New Testament is kneeling. Acts 21. When uh, Paul is leaving Ephesus and going to leave them for the last time, it says they go out on this beach and they kneel down and pray. Kneeling, that, that, that's a, a one. Uh, whenever uh, we uh, uh, see Jesus at times, this idea of prostrating oneself, or one is laying down, I mean like on their face, uh, if found in, in Matthew 26. Um, uh, this idea of prostrating yourself, of literally just falling before God um, is, is a posture. The bowing of the head uh, is often seen. And in that Luke 18 passage where the Pharisee and the tax collector pray to God, the the Pharisee lifting his eyes, he says, and praying to God, or actually praying to himself, uh, you know, when you realize that I'm thankful, Lord, I'm not like the rest of these people or like this tax collector. It says the tax collector would not even, but bowing his head. Now that's interesting, that in Judaism, the idea of bowing of the head is a sign of repentance and a sign of sorrow for sin. That's what the idea of bowing one's head is, at least in Judaism. I'm just looking at this and, and, and reflecting on it, and I'm realizing here that Jesus lifts up his eyes. This is, in fact, if you study uh, some of this, that the idea of one praying to God in the lifting of their eyes and their face to God. Now, this whole idea of posture, as I'm I'm working through this, I'm remembering something I read some time ago by C.S. Lewis. If you haven't read the Screwtape Letters, uh, you need to read that. Uh, It's one of the most uh, influential books in my life, Uh, or or especially the section on prayer. You know, you know, the section on prayer that, that uh, is his counsel uh, to his uh, little demon buddy. Uh, screw tape is a junior demon uh, who is uh, uh, working on his, what they call, patient. And uh, some of the teaching on prayer is, is phenomenal. You know, I told you that uh, maybe you do too. I, I find that the more that I read and the more that I study about prayer, that most people, when they're honest, would say it is a huge challenge. Anybody with me on it? A challenge to stay focused, 
to stay engaged. You know, I've told you before, you know, I'm praying and I'm interceding and I'm talking to God and I'm saying, Lord, please, I'm coming. Is that a bug? <laughs> and Lord, I need your help. Did I leave the back door open? Anybody? Right? <clears throat> Listen, I, uh, I read a guy one time, uh, uh, C.J. Fawn, who was a great preacher, who said, if you ever want to embarrass somebody spiritually, ask them how their prayer life is. A lot of truth to that, isn't there? A lot of truth to it. <clears throat> prayer is that incredible experience of connecting and communicating with God, but we all struggle with it. And I remember these lines in, uh, and I want to just read it out to you out of the screw tape letters. Uh, the the uh, head demon uh, with the junior demon, I don't know, uh, says this. One of their poets, Coleridge, the great English poet, has recorded that he did not pray with moving lips and bended knee, but merely composed a spirit of love and indulged in a sense of supplication. <clears throat> this is exactly the sort of prayer we want. This is him speaking to the demons. Since it bears superficial resemblance to the prayer of silence as practiced by those who are far advanced in the enemy's service. Now, remember, screw tape, God is the enemy here. He's, so he's saying, Coldridge is saying something that's somewhat true because there are people who are advanced in their prayer life to where they can pray silently and they're advanced. Uh, uh, but he said, uh, practiced by those who are advanced in the enemy's service. Clever and lazy patients, however, can be taken in for quite a long time. At the very least, they can be persuaded that the bodily position makes no difference in their prayers. They constantly forget what you must always remember. They're animals, and whatever their bodies do affects their soul. Isn't that interesting? That the idea that what we do in our body has some effect in this idea of posture. Jesus has a posture here of lifting up his eyes. Now, I was talking to Beth Thomas today. I wanted to get a picture of it. Beth and I were talking the other day that her grandmother taught her to pray when she was a little girl, and they went had a little kneeling, right, bench. She had a little kneeling bench. So, so Beth, and by the way, I didn't ask for permission to share this. So, you know what, Marty said to get forgiven later. Um, she had a guy, she know, we all know, who built her a kneeling bench. Beautiful thing. Beautiful. I've seen a picture of it. She showed it to me. And now Beth is teaching her granddaughter to pray. Beautiful example here of teaching a child to pray and having a prayer bench, if you will, to kneel. And pray. I just want to encourage you. I'm going to go to something specific, but I want to encourage you to think about this this week. That posture can have an impact. Whether it's kneeling or standing, sometimes I think, for, at least for me, I can just tell you this, my praying silently or, or my praying sometimes while I'm doing something else, it's fine. It's fine. But there are some times when I need to get that new posture of kneeling before God whether it's in my office or at my house or wherever it is. This, this understanding of, of posture, that there is a matter here of posture 
Now, what Jesus shows me here, or what I'm interested in, in this matter, is he lifts up his eyes. He looks up. Um, I, I know whenever I was growing a little bit spiritually, when I realized you could pray with your eyes open. I know that because I watch people on religious television do that. Right? And now, Lord, we pray that as they send in their money, I'm just being ugly here. They pray with their eyes open. I didn't know you could do that until I started watching religious television. But you can. And there's something here I want to kind of dig around in. Um, and you may say, well, Cliff, it's just your opinion. That's okay. I've wondered if sometimes the reason we don't lift our eyes and lift our face is because we're so full of shame. Just let that dig in for a little bit. God wouldn't want to look at me. God would want me to come boldly, as it says, to the throne of grace that we can receive mercy and help in time of need, Hebrews 4, 14, and 15. I have this sense that what would God want to hear from me about her? Why would, and specifically, he wouldn't want to see my face. So I have this sense of shame and sense of distance. And I've talked to people over the years and experienced this in one sense or another and and realized, I think, at some time in my life that my prayer often was more a time of groveling or a, more a time of feeling bad or, or feeling like I've got to do something to impress God instead of lifting my eyes and he wants to see my face. Do you see that right there? Jesus lifted his eyes. Jesus looked up. I, I'm not saying it is if you bow your head. I'm just asking you to consider something. Is your bowing of your head, closing of your eyes, if it's, you know, to be, con I'm trying to concentrate here, or I'm trying to, to not get distracted, okay, or I'm, I'm trying to be reverent, that's fine. I mean, I, I don't disagree with that, as long as it's that. But if in some of us, there's a sense of shame, a sense of distance, I want to ask you to think about that, that you might consider to pray like this, where you would lift your eyes and look up. I had a real powerful experience with this some years ago. <clears throat> and, um, you know, I don't agree with everything I read. I've told some of you I read Richard Rohr. I don't believe everything he, 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 he writes. I read, uh, uh, you know, uh, N.T. Wright. Uh, I don't believe everything N.T. Wright writes about. Uh, but some years ago, uh, we had Paul Young who came to Mid-America. The guy wrote The Shack. I don't agree with everything he writes. Uh, came and spoke. <clears throat> and uh, uh, it was an amazing experience uh, that I I'd never seen anybody. I'm just telling you, I've never seen anybody speak for an hour in our chapel and hold the attention of students and faculty and staff like he did. I I've, just, I've never seen anything like it in my life. And I heard people behind me, adults, wailing. I'm not talking about that kind of crying. I'm, oh, I mean, hearing them broken. A wail was coming out of one person I knew behind me. And so as the time was going on, um, I, I leaned over to a friend of mine. They'd asked me to close the, 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 the service, and I, pff, I leaned over to a friend of mine. I said, I have no idea how to close this. I don't know what to do. I, 
I mean, I don't know, you know, if you ever have to do that, you think, how do you kind of put a bow on it or end it or you just go, okay, thanks for being here. You know, it, it was too reverent. It, it was too holy of a moment. And so I went up on the stage at the chapel and I, I did the only thing I knew to do. I just said, now I just want you all to bow your head and close your eyes and we're going to pray here for a moment. My friend Paul Young got right up out of his chair and walked up to the platform and it took the mic. I'd never had anybody do that to me before. <laughs> you know, I went, uh, okay. And he said, we don't pray like this. God wants to see your face. He wants to see you looking to him. Open your eyes, lift your head, and look up to the Father that loves you and adores you. That was an incredible experience and a shattering one for me. I drove him to the airport. I couldn't even talk to him about it. I drove him to the airport. I couldn't talk about it. I, I only recently, two years ago, talked to him about it. Because it revealed in me a level of shame I didn't know was there. I couldn't just stand before him and lift my head and lift my eyes. That's too familiar. That, 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 that's too intimate. It rattled me. It shook me to the floor. I couldn't talk about it. I couldn't discuss it with anybody. I couldn't bring it up. And it was two years later that I finally, in, in, in fact, last April in uh, Phoenix, when some of us went out there and we had a little meeting together and Paul came and I said, Paul, I, I need to tell you something you did for me. You don't know it, but you did this for me. You made me face my shame. He's down in there somewhere. That for me to pray always meant to bow the head, to show reverence. And I, there's nothing wrong with that to show reverence, to be, to be uh, 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 sensitive to the spirit. I, I get all that. But there was something deeper than that. See, the real prayer of Jesus, the real Lord's prayer is, you look up, you open your eyes, and you look up. Not down, not crushed under the sense of your unworthiness, but look up. That verse has jumped off the page at me for the last some time because my own life and my own experience got pulled out of me in a moment and shook it right in front of me and said, Cliff, you need to look up. You need to open your eyes and know that you're accepted and loved because of Jesus, not because of you. So I, I want to ask you to consider something this week. If I can get this thing figured out here. What if this week you practice some active posture in your praying? A at least three times this week. But especially that you lift your eyes to the Father. What if this week you say, okay, you know what? Three, three out of seven or three out of whatever. I'm going to purposefully pray by lifting my eyes up 
and looking to the Father as I speak. You may be uncomfortable. You may not be able to do it a very long time. I'm, I don't have any, any plan here. I don't, I don't have any outcome as far as time. But I'd like for you to practice that. I'll do it. And, and we'll work uh, with it together. This idea in the real Lord's Prayer is that Jesus lifts up his eyes and he sees the Father. I, it's interesting to me. This is the way Jesus prayed. You can look at it in John chapter 11. When, when Jesus prayed for Lazarus to be raised from the dead, he said, and lifting up his eyes to the Father, he said, Lazarus, come forth. This is Jesus' model. Now we know in Gethsemane, he, he prostrates himself and falls before his Father and in that deep moment of agony. I'm not, I'm not saying it's the only way, but it seems to me this is the common way of praying, the posture that, that we should adopt, the posture that we should at least begin. Let me help you one other thing. I listened to a podcast the other day by a guy named Scott McKnight. He's a great guy. He's the guy that wrote the book Jesus Creed. If you get to listen to him, um, you know, it's a, he's a great guy. He made a, an observation. I thought, I, I've tried this before, and I, maybe I need to do it again in my prayer life as I lift my eyes. <clears throat> He, he, he recommended, and I, I did too. I, I think I mentioned to y'all some years ago that we went to Israel once or twice. We, I mentioned it. And, and one of the things that Jews do every morning as the sun comes up, as they can see a little bit of light, they begin to pray the Shema. Shema means hear. That's what the word Shema means. Listen up. That's a translation. But hear, Shema Israel. And they would pray, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. They pray that every day, and your neighbors yourself. They pray that every day. Scott said, you know, sometimes when we start practicing that, he wasn't talking about living out, but, but working in prayer. And you know, I, I said the other day, I, it seems to me, and I know we have some ways to do this in our centered groups and in apprentice, but I, I hope at some point you get interested in prayer enough, you either read a book about prayer or you take some training in prayer. Because it's a challenge to live this life out of prayer. Anyway, he said, when we pray the Shema, I pray the Shema. Here, here, O Cliff. You wouldn't say that, would you? It'd be weird. Not Israel, Cliff. I'm saying, oh, here, O Cliff. The Lord our God is one. And you shall love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And your neighbor as yourself. Hear this, Cliff. Hear this. The Lord is one. There's no one beside him. And, and I begin to pray for others. I begin to say, Lord, you know my friend who needs to know that you're the real God. I use this sort of as a model. So I pray that I know that the Lord our God is one. And then I begin to pray for others. Okay, Lord, you know my friend who needs to know you're the Lord, the God, the one. I begin to pray. And then, Lord, today, I am asking you, help me, enable me to love you with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength today. We're going to look at some of that, how that happens, but, but help me today, and then help my friend that I know that's struggling, or help my, my, my wife or others that I know that today they would love you with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength, let, and let the Spirit Say, maybe this person needs to love you with their mind or their soul or their spirit. And then, Lord, help me to love my neighbor as myself. 
Help me this day. Lifting my eyes up to God now. Lord, I, I need this. You, you got to help me. This, this idea of our posture in prayer can make a huge difference. So here's another one, the second one I want to look at. This is not my camera. It's, a, it's a Dick Greenlee's, and a, not really. If, if you shot a picture with this, um, uh, what do you think how the picture would look? Huh? Would there be anything wrong with the subject that you're taking? It'd be distorted, wouldn't it? I mean, here's an idea of what it might look like if you're taking that. That's not exactly. That's a picture of the sky. At least that's what we think it is. That here's a, a picture that there's nothing wrong with the sky, is there? There's nothing wrong with, with uh, uh, the sky here. There's nothing wrong with what we're taking. There's something wrong with the lens. Here's another one that you might, this one hurts my eyes. It's supposed to be a, tra a bunch of traffic. Uh, going along, and uh, this uh, this idea of a lens or focus is something I want us to look at here in this particular idea. Notice when it says, "And Jesus lifting up his eyes, he said, Father." Now I'm going to lay lay down there just for a second on that word. Uh, don't answer this out loud, obviously, but whenever you look up to heaven, who do you see? And how clear do you see him? I mean, I know people who, when they look up to heaven, they see the drill sergeant in the sky, <laughs> right? I, I really had some of those issues in my life when I was growing up. You know, my dad, you know, always reminded me, he brought me in the world, he could take me out, you know. Told me he thought I was a criminal. Why? no wonder I'm so messed up. But I grew up in a really rigid, doctrinal place where God is going to get you if you do something wrong. You know what? I tried it one time, and he didn't get me. <laughs> I did something wrong, and he didn't get me. And I thought, I can't keep doing this. Right? I had a distorted, broken, if you will, lens, it was cracked, view of God. I had... I had developed through time and whatever that, that this notion of, of God as some drill instructor or somebody that I could never please was there. I, I remember in some of my studies at, at seminary, you know, there's a great little book, you, if, if you haven't read it, called Your God is Too Small by J.B. Phillips. Your God is Too Small. And, and, he, and he refers to all of these views of the Father that we have. You know, one of them is the overvalued conscience. You know, I, I touch my, text my student. Your conscience is not God. God sometimes can use it, but it can be developed and trained and abused to where it doesn't work. You met people like this? I went to high school with a guy. I'm afraid to call his name in case anybody's his relative. This guy liked to hurt people. He'd been in so much trouble that they said high school or prison. I thought they were the same, but you know, see, at least where I went. This guy had no qualms about hurting people. Jerry Regeer, who used to go to this church and work for Frank Keating, he said that the Department of Justice is concerned because there's a new kind of criminal coming up. They're calling them super predators. 
And DOJ is building prisons as fast as they can to get ready for them. He said their characteristics are this. They have no hope, no male in their life, and no conscience. See, the conscience isn't God. Well, sometimes we think it is because it feels real, doesn't it? The conscience can be warped, trained, developed, all kinds of ways. We learned this, and you know this, in the studies after World War II. How in the world can you get German soldiers to kill millions of Jews without any qualms? Because you teach them long enough that they're subhuman, that they're not real, that they're the problem, and the conscience gets so calloused and seared, they can't even make that distinction anymore. Sure. So, so, so these distorted ones can really cause this problem. I, I think that's why Paul said in Romans 12, 1, therefore, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercy of present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, how? By the renewing of your mind. That must mean your mind, in my mind, is not automatically renewed, right? It's got all kinds of things twisted up in it. Our minds, if you want to think about this, about conscience, go to Hebrews 13 later. Hebrews 13 later says these things. This is how I think it's happening. He says, don't take lightly the discipline of the Lord. The person has a conscience like that blows it off. That's not that big a deal. Everybody sins. Everybody's bad. Everybody's, you know, no good. He says, don't take lightly the discipline of the Lord. That conscience is saying, well, you know, it's no big deal. Hebrews 13. I'm sorry, 12. Hebrews 12. Don't, don't take, yeah, see, you got to make a correction. <laughs> you that are taking notes, sorry. Um, don't, don't take lightly the discipline. And the second one is, or faint when you are disciplined by him. You know what that is? That's the conscience that's too sensitive. You got to go read that. Don't take lightly the discipline of my Lord or faint when you're disciplined by See, the conscience can go one of two ways. It can be too hard or too sensitive. Too sensitive. I grew up in a church that developed a lot of fainters. That when we were disciplined by the Lord, that was just proof we weren't saved. Anybody go to that church? <laughs> Anybody develop that conscience that, that you, it, it, it's, it's beyond belief? It, it, the idea that when you fail or you do something wrong, it's like you just, fa- uh, just give up. That's what you hear. That's a conscience that's been malformed or messed up. That's a conscience that hasn't developed correctly. So the two extremes are one to just blow it off. It's not no big deal. It's no big problem. Who cares? God will forgive me anyway. Or too sensitive, faint when you're disciplined by him. So these distortions that happen, let me tell you real quick, and I'm going to, and I I didn't have this in my notes, but I'm going to go ahead and do it. Uh, Here's two ways that your view of God got developed. And I think I've got this on here, the person of prayer. This is what we want to talk about, the person of prayer. I should have put that up there. The person of prayer. See what the word is there? Father. And we'll look at that for a second. Father. 
Um, there are two ways that people develop their view of God generally. This is a, from a study at Yale. Um, uh, I told you, uh, Greenlee, Dick Greenlee told me the other day he was down in southeastern Oklahoma. They said, uh, where did your daughter go to school? And he goes, Yale. He said, where? <laughs> Got to get back there in a minute. <clears throat> where did your daughter go to school? No, Yale. I lost it now. But two general ways that you develop your view of God. Number one is through significant relationships early in life. Through significant relationships early in life. Mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, older sibling. People that are older than you and have some God-like tendencies. Because they're, well, I remember the first time my dad and I were working on a car whenever I was right and he was wrong. I went, that, that's not true. Can't happen. My dad knows everything about a car. I know nothing. Well, those relationships early in life begin to form how we view ourselves and God. You know, a kid grows up in a home where they're in the way. They're trouble. They're not, they're not, they're not, we're not interested in you. They developed this idea that God is, couldn't be interested in them. Relationships, significant ones, early in life, have a profound effect on the way we view ourselves and the way we view God. J.B. Phillips and others said, the most profound relationship that has affected your view of God is your relationship or lack thereof with your father. That's the most determinative one. That's the first thing. The second way that people develop their view of God is through uncritical reflection on life. Uncritical reflection on life. This is why, you know, theology matters. I had a guy, I probably told you, but I had a guy when I was a pastor in Louisiana, I got through teaching a Bible study. And he came up to me afterwards and said, you know, I used to be in the ministry, and I said, yeah, I heard that. I knew that. He said, yeah. He said, but I kind of got away from the Lord and, and uh, got to doing my own thing. And then he said, I, I really got away from the Lord. Then he said this, then, then the Lord drowned my nine-year-old son to get me back in the ministry. Now, my mouth doesn't usually get ahead of my brain. But I looked him dead in the eye, and I said, that's not even possible. You're not that important. You, you thought I hit him ahead with a brick. I said, you're not that important for God to kill a nine-year-old kid. Are you out of your... He didn't come back to the Bible study. <laughs> and I wasn't asked back. You know, people say dumb things. I, they're trying to help. But everything that happens in our world isn't God's will. By any stretch, okay? And I, this disturbs people, I know. I understand that. But when people begin to tack on these ridiculous and terrible experiences, that that is somehow God, he's done that. He wanted to take his, this friend of mine's 16-year-old brother home. Come on, what kind of God needs him more than I do? This uncritical reflection on life, folks, twists our understanding of God, that he's this monster. J. 
John Wesley went so far as to say this. A guy was talking about all the things that had happened in life. And Wesley went so far as to say, he said, your God sounds a whole lot like my devil. The one who kills, steals, and destroys. That, that, that takes people out through sinful things or other matters. Or just the fact that we live in a fallen world. My secretary's friend, 41 years old, was driving back from a meeting where she would help to mentor young girls. She was driving along. She got tired. She fell asleep. She had a head-on collision and got killed. I don't believe God caused that. I don't believe God said, well, you know, I think it's about time. Get somebody in a car, get them really good and sleepy, and let them hit us 18-wheeler. That kind of reflection, when we start telling people that kind of stuff, begins to twist and turn this loving God, this one who's entered into our pain, who's entered into our world, now becomes the problem of this unpredictable, uncharacteristically mean person. Now, this is what Tozer said, and I think he's right. What comes into our minds when we think about God's the most important thing about us. What comes into your mind, what comes into my mind. Now, when Jesus says this, when he looks it up and says, Father, and as you study the New Testament, you realize that on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' great teaching there, he uses the word Father 17 times. And in this section we've been in, John 14, 15, 16, and 17, he uses the, the word Father 49 times. According to some studies and according to some theologians, here it is, that the unique, the unique contribution that Jesus made to Judaism, the unique contribution he made was that God is a father. No one in the Old Testament ever called God my father. It's absent. I went through on a research project and went through, there is no use of the word father in the Old Testament that speaks of anything other than a national bringing Israel into existence. There is no personal, intimate relationship with God in the Old Testament with Father. There is no, nothing in the literature that suggests that there is ever any evidence that Palestinian Jews ever called God my Father. Ever. For Jesus to address God as Father is therefore something incredibly new. It is nowhere in the, the writings of the Bible. And this idea of God as Father is the thing that Jesus comes to tell us about. He, he, he taught us on prayer, he taught, but nothing new there. I mean, pray to God. Sacrifice, sin has to be covered. He's going to be the covering. But the unique characteristic, the unique contribution is his explanation or his declaration of God as Father. Now, I, you can stay there, but if you'll go to your Bible, I want you to look at another verse real quick. Go to your table of contents, find the book of Romans. You knew I'd end up there sometime. 1070. <clears throat> it's where it is in my Bible. Go to Romans 8 because this idea, what I'm trying to say is this. When you lift your eyes to heaven, who you see matters. I want to say it again. When you lift your eyes in prayer, if you're going to do that, who you see matters. If he's the drill sergeant in the sky, 
you won't want to spend much time with him. If he's the person who just has your list of duties for today, you won't want to spend much time. If he's a loving, attentive father who desires to be with you, this is what Jesus is trying to teach. I'm going to ask you to consider that this week. Who do you see when you look up? Is it like that camera lens? Uh, I know there's some things about God, but it's all cracked. It's out of focus. In Romans 8, Paul's getting at this when he says this in verse 14 of chapter 8. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Now, in the New American Standard, the word there is led. I don't know how it is in ESV. I didn't, I didn't check it, but would you, just if you're, if you're following, see if you can, if these two terms show up in the same, at 14, 15. For all are being led by the Spirit of God. For you have not, verse 15, for you have not received a spirit of slavery leading. Is that word there in your version? Underline that. Because the word led, leading, these words are, are parallel. They're recurring. They're recurring. All those who are being led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God and daughters of God. And you have not received a spirit of slavery, what? Leading to fear again. Notice that. If you're being led by the Spirit and you're a son or daughter of God, where are you not being led? There, 15. Where are you not being led? Huh? Yeah. To fear. But you have received a spirit of adoption as sons where you cry, Abba, what? Father. Notice that. If you and I are being led by the Spirit of God, we're not being led into fear. Again. See, notice that word there. It must mean that when a person before they became a Christian was fearful of God, afraid of him, scared of him, wanted to stay away from him. But now that you're being led by the Spirit, you're not being led back to fear again. But you're, you've been leading the spirit of adoption. Now, John Wesley, as you know, I've reported on him a couple of times, made an observation about that, and that's this. And I, it's wrong. So when, when you look up to heaven, who do you see? He said, there probably are two types of Christians here listed in Romans 8, 14, 15 that relate to what we're talking about. And that's this. This is the Christian who has the spirit of slavery. <clears throat> they live by the grit and effort and success that they can pull off. And when they succeed, they feel close to God. And when they do well, they think everything's fine. But when they fail, when things don't work out, when they blow it, they feel far from God. 
Because a slave is only as valuable as his or her performance. Or you have the spirit of the son and daughter. You have the spirit of the son. You belong, you're valued because of birth. I remember one time when I was in college, in college and seminary, somehow I figured out how to set a car on fire. Um, really, both times, set my cars on fire. Don't ever, ju- don't ever try to use a, a, a long screwdriver and arc a, a starter when there's a little gas around the engine. Just, just a heads up. When I was in college, my car caught on fire. And my dad, you know, when, when I went to college, he said... Uh, have fun. When I went to college, my dad gave me a total of $20 to go to school. I worked two jobs, just, you know, thought I'd take care of that. When my car caught on fire and I had a job I had to drive to 90 miles on the weekend, I was working at a church, worked at a grocery store during the week and a church on the weekends. And I remember calling my dad thinking, I I don't know what he's going to do. My dad pretty close to the vest on his money. And we, we used to say he had some dollar bills in his wallet, hadn't seen the sunlight in 12 years. <laughs> Tight. We used to say tighter. Than, my dad also had, 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 had uh, mastered what we call in our family the fumble. Or as you see on the Geico commercial, alligator arms. <laughs> if he saw the check coming... He would look away to talk to someone so he could say, I didn't see it. I, I would have got it. I'd have been glad. Yeah. So a little background. So I called my dad and I said, Dad, this is crazy. Working on my car and it caught on fire and it's burned up. And I don't, I don't think there's any way uh, to uh, take care of it. And I just paused and, you know, I, I knew the relationship about my dad. And, and I remember my dad saying this to me. Cliff, you're my son. And if I have to get in the car here, he lived in Lexington, Kentucky, right out of it. If I have to get in a car right now and drive it down there to you, I'll bring you a car. You know, it didn't matter now about the car. What it mattered was my dad said, you're my son. You're my son. Nothing's going to change that. And if you need a car, I'm going to bring it. Guys, that happened over 40 years ago. 40 years ago. I can still hear that in that phone call to my dad. I knew all of my life that, you know, my dad was tough on me. But I always knew I was his son. My dad said to me toward the end of his life, it kind of shocked me at times because we'd had a pretty interesting relationship, if that's the way you want to say it. And my, my dad said something to me on a regular basis there. I wish he, you know, I could still talk to him about it, but he said, uh, when I would walk in the house, my beloved son in whom I am well pleased 
You know, when you're 57 years old, you'd think that. When you're 57 and your dad says, my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. You know, I, I, I served God a long time in my life out of fear. And I, and, I, and I served him because I had, listen to me now, I served him out of fear because I had to control him. I had to control him. Because my view, when I looked up, I didn't see a father I had to control him because if I sinned or failed, he was going to hurt me. I remember when I realized that. It was the most embarrassing thing I think I ever learned. When I wrote in the margin, I have treated you like an alcoholic parent that was trying to hurt me when you got drunk. And I wondered at times how much of my heart had I really given to him. Oh, I'd given him my obedience. Buddy, I was good on that. I, I locked it down. I did what I was supposed to do. I did it with her. I locked it down. But I wondered how much of my heart had I ever given him. You can't. You've not received the spirit of fear to lead to slavery again. But you've received the spirit of the son where you cry, Abba, Father. So I'm gonna end with this and we gotta go, but we'll finish this other part next week or sometime. When I was in seminary, good night, 35 years ago, I guess it is now, I was working through this hard because I'd left a large church in Houston. I've told you this before because I just got to the point I hated God. I couldn't stand him anymore. Couldn't, couldn't do it. Couldn't live out of fear anymore. I just couldn't do it. He didn't have my heart. He just had my obedience. And so I was working through this, this idea of that. And I had the, I had the distinct sense that the, the, the Spirit of God said this to, or impressed me because of some of the wonderful guys that I studied under. Asbury Seminary saved my life. Saved my life. And I, I sense the Spirit say this to me. For the next 30 days, I want you to call me Daddy in prayer. And I said, I can't do that. I never called my dad Daddy, ever. Maybe people do. Not in my house. I was 11 years old before I didn't know his first name wasn't Sir. And I said, I, I, don't, I don't know that I can do that. I felt like Abraham, you know, if there are 50 people in Sodom and Gomorrah, I'll let it go. How about 40? <laughs> and I said, I, I, don't, I don't think I can do that. It just isn't in my vocabulary. It isn't in my heart or spirit to say that. I said, could I do this? Dad. Dad. And I sensed the Spirit say, yes, you, you can do that. He's trying to get me into a... 30-day practice of trying to break out that when I looked up, what did I see? 
I saw a drill instructor. I saw somebody that was going to whack me if I got out of line. I saw somebody that had a rule book that was checking things off. I didn't see a father. And so I did. For 30 days, and I, and I remember lots of times, there's a little prayer chapel at Asbury I would go to, and I would say, dear, I was going to say, Lord, Dad, dear, Dad. It, it was hard work. But it was one of those experiences and experiments that I did that began to change and turn and help me to understand. Cliff, you've got to be conscious about this. You've been looking through this lens so long, you think that's the way it is. That's not the way it is. That's not the way it is. Let me give you the final thought on this. I know if you grew up like I did, and this is one of my life verses, the whole idea now is to leave and pray and look up to God and love him. Listen, listen, Wesley said it like this too. I'm so thankful for him. That true Christian living is to love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the Shema we talked about. He said this. This is, the, this is the important part. But you cannot love God until you're convinced he loves you. This isn't something you generate. You can't love God like that. On your biblical basis, 1 John 4, 19, we love because we're really serious and good people. Is that what it says in your Bible? We love because he first loved us. Your problem and my problem in prayer isn't we don't know what to say. It's we're not that comfortable with the person we're saying it to. We're not that comfortable. We need to see him new like Jesus did. It was we lift up our eyes. But you can't do, I can't do, no, you can't do this. You can't just walk in, I'm gonna love God if it kills me. It will, it will, I promise you. Start with understanding who Jesus came to reveal to us, the Father. And say, Lord, I'm not gonna try to love you unless I know and have a sense and understand that you love me. Because that's the drill. So here's the application if you want to try it, if your conception of God, oh, I, I, wait a minute, we got, you got to get this. This is from William Temple. This is the one that sent me over the edge. This is the one. William Temple, Archbishop of Canterbury. He said, if your conception of God is radically false, then the more devout you are, devout means serious, you know, I'm really after it, you know that. The more devout you are, what do you say? The worse it will be for you. Your soul is being molded by something based. You had much better be an atheist. I fell out of my chair at the library in Asbury Seminary and read that. If your view of God, if my view of God is incorrect, the more devout you are, the worse it is. Because you keep trying and you keep trying and you keep trying and you keep trying, thinking if I'll just try harder, it'll work. How's that going for you? It's worse. Be better if you're an atheist. So I'm going to ask you to try this. What if this week, each time you pray, you use the term father or daddy or dad this week? Now, I've kept you longer than I meant to, but 
This is one of those passages that is so formational, in my view, of every area of our Christian life in this prayer. So we'll pick it up and finish it next week. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, take the words of your word. Take your thoughts, your truths, and remake us. Casting out distorted and incorrect ideas and open our lives to the one that you, Jesus, came to reveal to us. Father, now lift up your head, lift up your eyes, quit bowing your head, look up. We're all look up now and we're just gonna say, I commit my life to you, my Father. I look to you, my Father. Create in me an understanding of who you are, Father. You're dismissed.